The media loves to report on the falling out of famous friends. It's a lot rarer for famous friends to stay in support of one another through controversy, especially when popular opinion has turned. You're going to end up losing out on a job if you support the wrong person, right? Back in 2006, after a video went viral of comedian Michael Richards, who played Kramer on Seinfeld, uh, a video went viral of him yelling slurs at his audience while he was performing some stand-up. In the aftermath, his longtime friend Jerry Seinfeld used his own appearance on David Letterman's show as an opportunity to give Michael a chance to publicly apologize. Uh, the audience, if you watch that video, it's kind of awkward. The audience clearly doesn't understand what's happening. They're laughing at what are not jokes, and they think at any moment Michael Richards is going to break into some sort of Kramer thing, and he just doesn't. And at one point, Jerry Seinfeld has to say, stop laughing, it's not funny, which is kind of funny, see? This guy's <laughs> laughing. Anyway, the executive producer of The David Letterman Show said that the segment was all Jerry's idea. While many were ready to cancel Michael Richards, Seinfeld hung in there. Seinfeld's publicist's comment at the time was, Jerry is just an extremely loyal person. I don't know how well that worked out for all of them, but interesting piece of Hollywood trivia. Now, Jonathan's friendship with David is the most defining element of his story. We can't think about Noah without the ark, or Jonah without the great fish, or Daniel without the lion's den. And in the same way, we really can't think about Jonathan's life without thinking about the relationship he had with David. There are four passages that focus in on their remarkable friendship. In them, we see something more than camaraderie, more than just a good rapport, more than buddies. We see what happens when God is the foundation upon which a relationship is built. When the Lord is the centerpiece between two people, he is able to produce profound unity, undying love, inexhaustible hope, and steadfast support, even in the most dire of circumstances. Matthew Henry once wrote this, where God unites hearts, carnal matters are too weak to separate them. And so we're going to begin our examination of this remarkable friendship in 1 Samuel chapter 18, starting in the first verse. There we read, when David had finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan was bound to David in close friendship and loved him as much as he loved himself. Uh, it's sad that we have to address this issue, but it comes up anytime you read about Jonathan and David. There are people out there who say that the two of them were in a homosexual relationship with one another because of their affection and friendship and because David would later sing this in his funeral lament for Jonathan. This comes from 2 Samuel chapter 1. In the song, he says, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were such a friend to me. Your love for me was more wondrous than the love of women. So people use this in uh, ways to uh, try to try to bring credence to the idea that they were in a romantic relationship together. So what are we to make of these statements here in 2 Samuel 1 or that they loved each other so much? Well, first of all, let's just step back for a minute. Two men who are as devoted to the Lord as David and Jonathan were would never have been involved in that kind of sexual sin. The fact of the matter is homosexuality was absolutely unheard of in Israel altogether. 
We also remember that in this period of time, God judged men severely, men like Saul and Eli and others for their sin, sometimes for their sexual sin, right? The sons of Eli were committing sexual sin. The sons of Samuel were committing sexual sin, and God judged them severely. And we have no reason to believe, and it would be completely inconsistent for God to overlook such a blatant transgression of the law when it came to Jonathan and David. After all, Saul's getting the kingdom taken away from him because he uh, offered a sacrifice that he wasn't supposed to offer. Later, he's going to lose his life because he goes and sees a medium and because he's not following after the Lord. It makes God a respecter of persons in a very bad way if he says, yeah, but I overlook this thing that I clearly call sin in the law of Moses when it comes to Jonathan and David. Second, scholars can evaluate the language used in these passages. Listen to this source. It says, the Hebrew word used here for love involves a personal commitment of self in the purest and noblest intentions of trust and obedience toward God. It is not used to express homosexual desire or activity. The Hebrew word used in the sense of having sex with in Genesis 19 is never used in the Jonathan-David relationship. So then what does it mean that their love exceeded the love of women then? It's kind of a weird thing to say, or at least an unusual thing to say. Well, Jonathan was not only David's friend. He was also his brother in arms. They fought together. But even more, more than that, he was also his brother-in-law after a while. And yet, David's relationship with Michael, the daughter of Saul, fell apart while his relationship with Jonathan persisted all the way to the end of Jonathan's life. And so in that way, David's lyric here is just kind of a description of reality, that Jonathan's love, their, his affection for David, their relationship together as friends, it did exceed the love of at least one of David's wives. It exceeded that love of Michael, which had grown so cold toward David. Now, on top of that, David's declaration in his funeral lament confirms that their friendship wasn't about physical attraction or romantic love. He said this is much more than the simple, you know, idea of human physical attraction, right? Not that there's anything wrong with romantic love. We're all about that uh, when it comes to a man and a woman, a biological man and a biological woman united in a a committed relationship with one another in marriage, right? But David's saying, yeah, our friendship wasn't about that. It was a unity far beyond temporal fondness or anything like that. Instead, we're told three times that Jonathan loved David as much as he loved himself, that he had bound himself to David. And we'll see that he did so in tender and costly ways. Let's look at verse three of 1 Samuel 18. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as himself. And then Jonathan removed the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. This scene takes place after David slew Goliath as a young man. We're not given all the detail we'd like, so it is kind of hard to know for sure how old David is in the in the toddler Bible that you read with your kids, David's always like four years old and Goliath is like 100 feet tall. And we're trying to get, get an idea across, I understand, but it, it, we have to remember that David was, was young, but grown enough that he could chase down a bear or a lion that had taken a sheep. 
Not only that he could fight that animal, but he could chase it down, right? He could track it. I mean, so, I mean, scholars estimate he's probably around 17 or 18 when he slew Goliath. And so how old is Jonathan? We just, it's hard to know. Some commentators feel that they were about the same age. Others go as far as saying Jonathan was maybe 10 years older than David. It seems likely as we kind of just sketch out the, the life of Saul, the age of his sons when he dies, all of those sorts of things. It seems like probably Jonathan is somewhere between five and 10 years older than David, but they're in the, in the realm there. David had come from tending sheep to bring supplies to his brothers on the front lines at the battle with the Philistines. Now, David killed the giant and now was brought into the palace to serve the king. But being a country boy, he wouldn't have the kind of clothes that would be required for court. He didn't have any armor. Remember, he goes into the tent of Saul and Saul tries to give him his armor because he's just out there in whatever shepherds wear. Uh, and so he doesn't have the proper clothes, but Saul says, hey, you're not going home. You're just gonna serve me from now on in the palace. And he doesn't have the equipment that he needs to do so. So we see here Jonathan very graciously providing proper apparel for his new friend, but he really is doing much more than just a favor to David. He's not just saying, hey, let me, I'll, I'll loan you a, a quick robe so that you don't look like an idiot in front of my dad, right? Uh, and Jonathan, had, Jonathan was the prince of Israel. I mean, it, he had more than one robe to give if he was just trying to help David out a little bit. He's doing something much more important than that. As the prince of Israel, as Saul's oldest son, Jonathan was heir to the throne. He was going to be the next king, at least from the human perspective. What he's doing here is profound. He is stripping himself of his royalty and he is giving it to David, unprompted. Uh, and this is a, a, a dramatic and amazing moment. He willfully transferred his office and his claim to the throne to this young man who God had chosen to be king. Did Jonathan know that David had already been anointed in place of his father? That happens back in 1 Samuel 16. It's possible. That was a number of years earlier. But we don't know if Jonathan specifically knew that Samuel had already anointed David. But it's clear that Jonathan understood that God had a specific plan for David and he was on board with it all the way from the beginning, despite the fact that it was his place David would be taking. Uh, we can't emphasize this enough. Jonathan gives up everything in his relationship with David. It's his throne. It's not just his robe. It's not just his crown. It's his spot that David is going to be taking. And from the beginning, Jonathan says, I'm good. This is clearly what the Lord wants to do, and I want to do what the Lord wants to do. In their friendship, Jonathan was not focused on what he would get out of it, right? I'm sure you have had friends or have friends that you can tell when, that, when, when the phone rings and that name lights up your screen, you're like, I wonder what they want now, you know? And that's a bummer. We don't want to be friends like that. Uh, it's kind of human nature in, in many of our relationships to kind of, even if we're generous in giving people, I mean, we also need things. And so it's, it's, it's mostly human nature to kind of think, well, what can I also get out of this? But Jonathan doesn't do that with David, uh, not primarily. There will, there will be a time at which he says, hey, if I don't survive, 
please take care of my family. Uh, so that's about as far as he goes when it comes to asking David for something. But we see here that Jonathan's goal was to support and love David no matter what it cost. Pastor David Guzik points out that Jonathan, of all people in the palace, all people in Israel, Jonathan had the most to fear from David from the human way of thinking. It was his throne, after all, that David would be, quote unquote, taking. Uh, and yet, what are we noticing? We notice from the beginning that no one loved David more than Jonathan loved David. Not his brothers, not his dad. His dad didn't even bring him when the, the holy man came and he said, hey, I wanna have a feast and your family's gonna be the guest of honor. His dad's like, he can stay with the sheep. Thanks, dad. Uh, his brothers are chewing him out all the time. Not his own wife or some of his other wives. Uh, not, not any, no one in the, in the whole country loved David as much as Jonathan loved David. And he showed it sacrificially. It wasn't just something that he's like, oh yeah, I love that guy. No, he day by day showed it sacrificially. So their friendship begins in chapter 18 where they made a covenant, but now it's immediately put to the test in chapter 19. So if you page over to chapter 19, verse one, Saul ordered his son, Jonathan, and all his servants to kill David. That escalated quickly. Uh, so Saul is, is, he likes to swing from one extreme to another. He, by now, at this point in the story, David is not only a hero in Israel, he's also at chapter 19, Saul's son-in-law. But madness and jealousy are starting to consume the king. It's a very sad story. Verse one continues. But Saul's son, Jonathan, liked David very much. So he told him, my father, Saul intends to kill you. Be on your guard in the morning and hide in a secret place and stay there. I'll go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are and talk to him about you. When I see what he says, I'll tell you. It seems that there's a new scandal among prominent people making the news every day. Uh, I guess it gets a lot of clicks and views and things. It's interesting, whether it was Harvey Weinstein or Jeffrey Epstein or any of those kinds of people, the family and friends around them are always claim, oh, I didn't know anything. I didn't see anything. I, I don't know. This is all news to me. Yeah, you knew what was going on, but whatever. I mean, so, but it's interesting. Jonathan had no guile and he doesn't turn a blind eye to anything wrong that's happening. Despite his loyalty to the throne of Israel, which we talked a little bit about last time, despite that loyalty, he knew and acknowledged that his father was absolutely doing wrong. He didn't throw up his hands and say, well, I, I don't know, I didn't see anything. See no evil, hear no evil. He says, no, man, my dad is sinning. He's doing what's wrong. He didn't pretend like it wasn't happening. He didn't try to save face or spin the story or anything like that. He says to David, hey, man, my father wants to kill you. And he gives David counsel about what he should do. From this moment forward, Jonathan will spend the rest of his life in a very, very difficult position. He has his love for David, his zeal to honor God's will and to be a part of it. At the same time, we find that he has a duty to the current king, his father, Saul. This is one of the most confounding things about his story, and we'll get into it more next time when we look at his relationship to his dad especially. But Jonathan hangs in there. All of these scenes where all of this tension is happening, we keep seeing Jonathan, it says, and Jonathan went back home, and Jonathan went back to the city. Jonathan went back to work. 
It reminds me of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they're in the fiery furnace, right? Um, one of the, I think my favorite parts of that story is at the end when Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, you guys come out. And then they say, okay, and they come out of their own free will, right? Which means that they stayed in the fiery furnace until they were called for. That's weird. And that's, that's crazy. But they're just walking around in there. Yeah, Jesus is in there with them, but, but they had the ability to exit that fiery furnace and they waited. And Jonathan's that kind of guy. He keeps going back home, keeps going back to the job, not because he's turning a blind eye to what Saul is doing. In fact, he is standing in opposition to his dad in many of these scenes, but he keeps showing up. He keeps going back. He keeps living life in this very difficult position because God called him to that position. And so he had his love for David, but he also had his duty to the throne. In that tension, we'll find he's always careful to watch out for David. At the same time, for a long time, Jonathan holds out hope that he will be able to convince Saul to do the right thing. And in that way, he's a great example to us of something we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where it's describing the operation of God's love in our lives as Christians, where Paul says, love, which is in you as a Christian and in me, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That is a great sort of assessment of what it was like to be Jonathan for, for these years of his life. Now, in the next verses, we see that Jonathan wasn't just a friend in word. He wasn't just a fair weather friend. He was a friend in deed as well. Verse four, Jonathan spoke well of David to his father, Saul. He said to him, the king should not sin against his servant, David. He hasn't sinned against you. In fact, his actions have been a great advantage to you. He took his life in his hands when he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord brought about a great victory for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. So why would you sin against innocent blood by killing David for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan's advice and swore an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be killed. So Jonathan summoned David and told him all these words. Then Jonathan brought David to Saul and he served him as he did before. So we're having to move quickly through these stories, uh, but it's important to remember that Saul wasn't just blowing off steam and said, we should get rid of this guy. He had actually tried to kill David more than once at this point. Uh, he's already slipped into full-blown madness, and, and he's being tormented by this, this evil spirit, and he's throwing spears at people. I mean, he's, he's gone crazy. So even though it's his dad, Jonathan knows what his dad is capable of. Again, I don't wanna to spoil too much for next time, but Saul has already at least one time tried to have Jonathan killed because he felt disrespected. And, and so Jonathan's not a dummy, but he makes this choice and takes the stand, right? He stands up to the king and rebukes his sin. And that takes a lot of courage because Jonathan was taking his life in his hands. Yeah, David had to fight Goliath. Jonathan had to contend with Saul. But as Jonathan walked this tightrope of faithfulness, he knew that this was the right thing to do. We always see him in every aspect of his life, whether as a warrior, as a son, as a friend, he always was willing to do the right thing, to do the godly thing, even when it was costly, even when it was dangerous, even when it would 
actually claim his life. And so he never turned back from doing what he ought to do. It would have been easier to just either make a choice to side with his dad or to make the choice to abandon his dad and say, okay, I go with David now, right? But he doesn't do either of those things. Instead, he chose the more excellent way, God's way. And because of it, we see here, he was able to accomplish this incredibly difficult thing. He turned the heart of Saul back from sin and he restored David into service in the palace for a time. That's a big deal. It's at least as amazing as felling a giant with a stone and a sling. Because, you know, as you read through Saul's story, you see just how scary and crazy he was. And David said, hey, I'm going to be the guy that stands in this gap, and I'm going to do everything I can to bring God's will into this situation. I'm not only going to try to provide protection and escape and provision for David, I'm also going to try to bring Saul along and say, hey, what you're doing is in contradiction to what God has said. Won't you please turn back from your folly and go God's way? And at least here, uh, he was successful in that work. Sadly, Saul's promise didn't last long. By chapter 20, he's back on the warpath against David. And it's here where we read the most famous story concerning Jonathan and David's friendship. This is 1 Samuel 20, starting in verse 1. David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What did I do wrong? How have I sinned against your father so that he wants to take my life? Jonathan said to him, No, you won't die. Listen, my father doesn't do anything great or small without telling me. So why would he hide this matter from me? This can't be true. So Jonathan wasn't stupid, and obviously we don't know everything that was going on. It does seem as readers as though he's not quite aware of really how bad the situation had become. Maybe Saul actively left him out of the loop. Obviously he had. Uh, it's possible that Jonathan didn't know about the most recent attempts Saul had made on David's life. But we also know that as a baseline in his mind, Jonathan had a resolute faith that God would do for David what he promised. So when David showed up and said, I'm going to die, that, was, that didn't even compute for Jonathan. At his baseline, in his mind, he thought, that's not what God has said, so it cannot be true. And that is such a great example and testimony to us. Jonathan, from here on out, when it comes to David, is always reminding David, this is what the Lord says. And this is what you feel right now. Here's what's going on. Circumstances, pressures, all of these weird curveballs are coming to you. This is what the Lord says. And you, David, my friend, you're saying something that is in contradiction to what the Lord says. And so I don't even know how to process that. Let me remind you of what God says, because obviously that's true. And that is what is going to happen. Charles Ellicott writes this, Jonathan possessed an intense, unswerving belief in the power of Jehovah of Israel to keep and to save all who trusted in him. Verse three of 1 Samuel 20. But David said, your father certainly knows that I have found favor with you. He has said, Jonathan must not know of this or else he will be grieved. David also swore, as surely as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, there is but a step between me and death Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. So they hatch a plan to determine how serious Saul is about killing David. We'll look at it a little more uh, next time. 
But while Jonathan is at the feast, David is back in the field and he's waiting. And once everything goes down, we have that famous scene where Jonathan takes the young page out to the field and he pretends he's doing archery practice. He fires his arrows as a signal to David. And uh, that's what makes him you know, indelible in our minds as an archer. And we also saw earlier, he gave David his bow. So he liked bows and arrows, but that's what's happening here. Drop down to verse 41 of 1 Samuel 20. When the servant had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone easel, fell face down to the ground and paid homage three times. Then he and Jonathan kissed each other and wept with each other and David wept more. Jonathan then said to David, go in the assurance the two of us pledged in the name of the Lord when we said the Lord will be a witness between you and me and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And then David left and Jonathan went into the city. There's a significant difference between Jonathan and David in this passage. David had said, there's only a step between me and death. And he thought, okay, I gotta get out of here. I just gotta run. Jonathan is saying, the Lord's gonna do what he promised. It looks bad. My dad's gone crazy. But the Lord is definitely gonna do what he promised. In the passages we're given, Jonathan never wavers in his belief that God would truly do what he had said for David. And here, as he provides for David to escape, Jonathan encourages him with the fact that God sees, God knows, God is working on behalf of his people to accomplish his will. Jonathan did not give up hope when times were tough and there seemed to be no way forward. Instead, he just pressed into the promises of God more and he preached them to others and he continued executing his calling and his commission as faithfully as ever. We see one more instance of Jonathan and David's friendship in 1 Samuel 23. This starts in verse 15. David was in the wilderness of Ziph and Horesh when he saw that Saul had come out to take his life. Then Saul's son, Jonathan, came to David in Horesh and encouraged him in his faith in God, saying, don't be afraid. For my father Saul will never lay a hand on you. You yourself will be king over Israel and I'll be your second in command. Even my father Saul knows that it is true. Then the two of them made a covenant in the Lord's presence. Afterward, David remained in Horesh while Jonathan went home. We used to show I am second videos sometimes on Wednesday nights. I think Jonathan was maybe the first I am second believer. Uh, he tells David, I'm gonna be your second in command. I, I, I wanna see you on the throne. I wanna see a crown on your head and I'll just be the other guy. But we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna go forward in God's glory, go forward for God's people. I'll be there supporting you as king and we're gonna just honor God with everything that we do. Don't forget, it was his throne, at least from the human perspective. But he recognized that the Lord had a very different plan, and he was not only okay with that, he was excited to be a part of it. This is an amazing aspect of who he was as an individual. All that he was, in a sense, missing out on, losing out on, and he just said, I just wanna be, be a part of what God is doing. We saw that last time as we looked at his life as a warrior. He just wanted to be a part of what God was doing. He just wanted to be a part of God's deliverance and God's glory and God's work. Now, though this seems like just another renewal of their covenant together, it's important that we realize what the context was. David was, had fled from his home. He had fled not just from his home, but to the land of the enemy. 
He fled to the land of the Philistines in chapter 21. At this point, he's living like a fugitive, exiled in the wilderness. This is not a good period in David's life or in his walk with the Lord. We see that he is without faith, effectively. What he's saying, well, I'm gonna die, your father's gonna kill me, what are we gonna do? I better go be with the Philistines. That's not what God wants for David. This is a, a big blunder in David's life. And so not a good period for him. These were the years where David almost murdered Nabal and all the men in his household for not showing him enough respect. These were the years where David complains when the Philistine rulers won't let him go to war with them against the Israelites. He was convinced that Saul was going to succeed, succeed in his effort to assassinate him. In that situation, what does Jonathan do for his very best friend? He encourages him not to just feel better, not to just like wallow in his sadness. He encourages him in his faith in God, the text says. He doesn't give him empty promises or cliche words. He speaks the truth of what God had revealed. Jonathan believed the word of God even when it seemed like it could not happen. No one there measuring out this situation would have said, yeah, I think David is gonna be king. David's about to fight against the people of Israel on behalf of the Philistines. What? And the Philistine rulers are like, isn't this the guy that like cut off the head of our giant and killed 10,000 people? Isn't, is this that same guy? Yeah, that's him. Yeah, you can't go with us. And then he protests. He's like, what do you mean? I'm offended that you won't let me go with you. So anyone looking at this situation and saying, who's gonna be king after Saul? Is it gonna be David? No one would say, yes, it's gonna be David. They would say, that's impossible, he's done. Maybe he had a shot a few years ago when he was the slayer of 10,000s, but he's some kind of vagabond out in the wilderness now. He's a has-been. And Jonathan is the one guy saying, no, man, you're gonna be king, no matter what. Yeah, you're living in a cave right now, but you're gonna be king over Israel. God used this man's friendship to assist, support, and sustain David through some of the most trying years of his life. What did Jonathan get in return? Nothing. He really got nothing in return, at least not on the earthly level. He got a lot in the spiritual level and the eternal level. He's gonna be a great guy to talk to in heaven. But when it comes to like the logbooks of earth, Jonathan got nothing. Sure, they were friends, but Jonathan gave up a lot more than he got back on this side of eternity. He forfeited the crown. He forfeited praise from the people. He forfeited his father's good graces. Why? Because his affection for David wasn't selfish. It wasn't worldly. He understood that he was part of God's unfolding work, and he was just happy to have a place in it because he knew that that work would last forever. And all the pressure and all the burden and all the sacrifice was well worth it to him to go God's way and be counted among God's faithful. John 15, 13 says this, no one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. When I hear that and picture it, I often think of a person taking a bullet for another person, right? That they lay down their lives to save a friend in a moment of crisis. Right, that there's a sudden cataclysm and, and one person heroically stands in the way in order to be uh, the savior in that movement, moment. And that's certainly a way of thinking about it. But Jonathan gives us another way of thinking about that verse, of laying down our lives for our friends. Jonathan shows us how a person full of the spirit of God, full of the word of God, 
can lay down their lives every single day for their friends. That's what he did. He laid down his life, his rights, his privileges, his position. He laid it down day after day after day after day after day. And that's the Christian calling, right? To take up our cross and die daily. Not one time, but Jesus said, hey, this is an everyday thing. This is the life that you're supposed to live each and every day. In friendship, that looks like Jonathan, staying faithful, staying truthful, staying sacrificial, loving others as much as we love ourselves, knitting ourselves to those people God brings into our lives in the local church. That's the image, not only that we see of Jonathan and David together, but that's the image that we're given in the epistles, that we are knit together, living stones put together in a particular order, in a particular time, in a particular gathering for God's glory. But not only is Jonathan an example to us of executing the believer's you know, faith in a really great way, and he is, but he's also, as we've said before, a foreshadow of Christ. In each of these looks at Jonathan's life as warrior and friend and son, we'll be able to catch precious glimpses of our Savior, a Savior who calls us his friends, right? Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants, I call you friends, and we get to see Jonathan as this sterling example, and Jesus goes so far beyond just the best that Jonathan ever was. We, it can't be calculated. It can't be measured, right? But Jonathan gives us these little glimpses of what Jesus would be like. Jesus, who laid down his life for us. Jesus, whose friendship is full of a love that there is no greater love. No one can love us more than Jesus loves us. The way that no one loved David more than Jonathan loved him no one loves us more than Jesus loves us, and he laid down his life for us to prove it. Here are some of those types that we could point out from Jonathan's example. First, we see multiple times that, that Jonathan told David all his father said. Now, of course, I'm not trying to compare Saul to God the Father, but just in that act, he said, he, we see him multiple times. He's like, I'm gonna tell you everything the father said. Right? It reminds us of how Jesus said, I have made known to you everything I've heard from my Father. He does not withhold, he reveals, he loves to communicate, he loves to share, he loves to bring us into that, that intimate knowledge of here's what the Father has said. Like Jonathan, Jesus is bound to us with cords of love, seeking our good and our elevation. Like Jonathan, Jesus supplies us a robe so that we might enter into the court of the king, his robe of righteousness given freely to us as an act of selfless love. Like Jonathan, Jesus shares his throne, even though he doesn't have to. Like Jonathan, Jesus was willing to endure very difficult circumstances to help and protect his friends. Like Jonathan, Jesus made an undying and unbreakable covenant with his friends and paid for it with his life. One that he upholds and affirms again and again and again. Like Jonathan, Jesus lives a life of unwavering loyalty. Like Jonathan, Jesus interceded for the accused and advocated for them, restoring them into fellowship and service. Like Jonathan, Jesus remains faithful even when we are faithless. There were times in, in these moments where David was faithless. He didn't believe anymore that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. And Jonathan said, yes, he is. 
And not only was he still faithful to God and God's promises, he was faithful to David in that time of doubt and weakness. And Jesus remains faithful even when we are faithless. Jesus encourages us in our faith in God. He speaks the truth of God's word to us. He supplies our needs. He has given us a way of escape from death. And like Jonathan, Jesus has gone into the city before us. There in that scene by the rock with the arrows, it says that, that David had to go on the run and we're told that Jonathan went into the city. And that's just a very simple picture that Jesus has gone into the city before us, but he's waiting. He's waiting for that moment where we're going to be brought into the city and he can be with us forever and ever. And there he will ever be our friend, the greatest of friends who loves more than we even love ourselves. A friend whose love surpasses all others, no matter the circumstances, no matter the struggles, no matter our failures. He is our friend forever, fast and tight, always ready to embrace us and remind us and clear the way forward so that God can do what he has promised he will do in and through us. 